Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. So I just kind of want to catch you up to where we've been. We've been on this sermon series um, called Unexpected King, and we've been traveling through the book of Mark. I hope you've been following along, and I hope you've been blessed uh, by the study of the book of Mark. And so one of the things that we kind of moved on two weeks ago, we came to what we called the intersecting point of the book of Mark. And the first half of the book of Mark was coming to an end, and we were going to enter into the second half of the book of Mark. And something you need to understand is that in the first half of Mark, or the first eight chapters of Mark, um, Mark focuses on the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And then in the second half, or the last eight chapters, um, Mark will begin to focus on the work of Jesus. So what's the difference between the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus? Well, the person of Jesus is Jesus' identity. The work of Jesus is his cross. And so with this kind of change in focus comes two shifts in the storyline in the book of Mark. And um, these two shifts are this. There's a shift of intensity. Uh, Things start to become more intense in the second half of Mark. Um, And there's also a shift of attention. Uh, Jesus begins to change his focus in a different direction. And so let me break that down for you um, just for a moment. Um, What was the shift of intensity? Well, Pastor Roger uh, mentioned this last week. In the second half of Mark's gospel, things begin to become more difficult for Jesus and his disciples. Things begin to intensify. There's a very real sense that clouds are forming and a storm is coming. But there's not just a shift of intensity, but there's also a shift of attention. You see, in the second half of Mark's gospel... We'll, we'll see Jesus concentrating less on the crowds. Do you remember, for those of you who have been here, he's been healing the crowds. He's been casting out diseases. He's been spending a lot of time with the crowds. Well, in the second half of Mark, we'll see a shift of attention. Jesus will concentrate less on the crowds, and he'll begin to concentrate more on his disciples because he's preparing them for his death. And... In the second half, his death is coming quickly. It's more imminent. And so you could see how the disciples would need much more preparation. <clears throat> so I, I, want, I want you to stay with me. I'm going to, again, continue to teach. But in chapters 8 through 10, Mark demonstrates this preparation. He demonstrates this concentration on, on Jesus' disciples. And by creating a pattern in the storyline. So remember, Mark is writing this story on purpose. And he's picking and choosing where he wants to fit the stories in order to communicate to you something. And so in chapters 8 through 10, Mark is going to show us a pattern that emerges. And through that pattern, you and I are going to learn something. So let me tell you what that pattern is. And then I'll show you that pattern on the screens here. Um, The pattern looks like this. Jesus will predict his death. The disciples will be clueless. 
They'll be clueless. He'll predict his death, and the disciples will respond uh, completely clueless about what he's trying to do or say. And then finally, Jesus will respond to their cluelessness by using that as a teachable moment to teach them something about discipleship. So let me show you what that looks like. Um, The first place this pattern emerges is in Mark chapter 8. And so we'll kind of put this here for you. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man will suffer, that the Son of Man will be rejected, that the Son of Man will be killed, and then he will rise on the third day. Then in Mark chapter 8, verse 32 and 33, Peter will rebuke Jesus for being too morbid. In fact, Peter will pull Jesus aside and scold him and tell him, no, you will never die. And then we will finally see Jesus responding to that rebuke made by Peter by rebuking Peter and essentially saying, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus will begin to teach his disciples that in order to be a disciple, you must first deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. This pattern emerges in a second place in Mark chapter 9. And if you look at chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, again, Jesus will predict the Son of Man will be delivered, the Son of Man will be killed, and then he will rise on the third day. In fact, in, de- in, in, uh, in fact, in chapter nine, verse thirty-two, um, um, in chapter nine, verse thirty-two, the disciples will still kind of come off ignorant and not fully understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus will tell them, "Look, the Son of Man is going to be killed. The Son of Man will die. The Son of Man will rise on the third day." And the disciples will scratch their head. And what Mark will tell us is that they're scared to ask Jesus to explain. They still don't get it, but they're too afraid to ask him. What do you mean by this? And so ultimately in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 50, Jesus will teach that the first will be last and that anyone who receives a child in his name receives him. And we'll continue on. One more place that this pattern emerges is in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, verse 33 through 34, Jesus will again predict that the Son of Man will head to Jerusalem The Son of Man will be delivered, condemned, mocked, flogged, killed, and will rise again in three days. And you know what's coming next. The disciples in chapter 10, verse 35 through 37, um, who had, interestingly enough, been previously arguing about who was greater. So while Jesus is talking about his death, the disciples are arguing, well, who's better? Who's greater? The disciples who have been previously arguing about who is greater... Uh, will jockey for position, and two disciples, specifically John and James, will actually ask Jesus, may we sit next to you in your glory? Now, you have to understand that if you were a king uh, and you were to sit on the throne, uh, the most important people would sit to your right and to your left. And so James and John are here asking Jesus, look, whenever you go to your glory, can we sit to the left and to the right? And I'm sure that angered the entire disciples because, again, they're arguing about who's the greatest and they're jockeying for position. And finally, Jesus will say this about discipleship in John, uh, I'm sorry, in Mark 10, 38 through 45. Jesus will teach um, to be great. You have to become a servant and to be first, you must become slaves And Jesus will say, even I have come 
as a ransom to give my life for many. Now, from these patterns or from this pattern that Mark has left us, I just kind of want to share three valuable lessons, and then we'll pray. Lesson number one, be patient with those you disciple. Be patient with those you disciple. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in knowing that Jesus was the greatest communicator, the greatest teacher on the planet, and yet he had students who regularly misunderstood him. Take comfort in knowing that Jesus was the greatest preacher of all time. Take comfort in knowing he's the greatest communicator of all time, yet he still had students who regularly misunderstood and did not get what he was trying to say. So to parents uh, and to spouses, <laughs> here's what I want to tell you. And to leaders, here's what I want to say. Never fail to apply grace in their learning process. Never fail to apply grace in their learning process. Be patient with those you disciple. Number two, learn endurance in your own discipleship process. Learn endurance in your own discipleship process. And I just want to encourage somebody, okay? And here's what I want to encourage you with. Don't beat yourself up when you find yourself having to learn the same lessons over and over and over and over and over again before it sinks in. Now, let me pause. This is not an excuse to say, oh, I could just do whatever I want. This is a reminder to apply truth and grace to your own process. To apply truth and grace to your own process. And finally, number three, the third lesson we learn out of this is that death and discipleship are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Following Jesus means being ready to die. Following Jesus means being ready to die. So on that note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for those that are here this morning that made it. I pray that our hearts would be good soil for your good seed and that it would produce good fruit for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I thank God for Pastor Roger bringing up these towels because this light right here has got me sweating. So uh, never mind if I just keep patting myself. I just want you to know. Um, with that being, Roger, thank you so much for seeing that. Um, here's what I want to start off uh, with a challenge this morning. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. The misplaced belief of a Christian is just as dangerous as the unbelief of an atheist. The misplaced belief of a Christian is just as dangerous as the unbelief of an atheist. You see, it's possible to say, I love Jesus. It's possible to say that I am committed to Jesus. It's possible to say that I follow Jesus, but still place your hope, your confidence, and your trust in something else other than him. And here's a question that I want you to consider this morning. 
What are you currently empowering in your life right now to bring you ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, and ultimate meaning? What are you currently empowering in your life right now to bring you ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, and ultimate purpose? I want you to know this. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to empty ourselves of misplaced belief and redirect it into Jesus. He alone is worthy of your belief, and he alone is the only one who is capable of carrying it without letting you down. Here's why you should put your hope, trust, faith, security, confidence in Jesus and not anything else. Because when you have a misplaced trust in other things, when those things don't work out, your life is ruined. Christ is the only one worthy of your belief. Your husband and wife did not sacrifice themselves on a cross for your sins and drink the entire wrath of God in your place. Your career is not worthy of holding your ultimate purpose. So with that in mind, let's look at an encounter Jesus had with a young man in Mark chapter 17, chapter 10, sorry, verse 17 through 31. We'll have it for you on the screens, but if you have your scriptures, we'd love for you to go there. Mark chapter 10. Verse 17 through 31. And it reads like this. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my bar mitzvah. All these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I want you to pay attention to this part. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Can I just stop right there? You want to know why the disciples were amazed at his words? Because in that culture, prosperity meant you were blessed. Mm, Sounds like our culture, doesn't it? Sounds like what pastors are preaching every Sunday on pulpits. You see, they were astonished because they believed this man was blessed by God with money, so he must be doing something right. So they're astonished when Jesus says how difficult it is 
In fact, it's an impossibility for someone to enter into the kingdom who's wealthy. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? So he doesn't say it's difficult for rich people, but now he's saying it's difficult for all of us to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus then says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, I love this, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, <laughs> Peter, right? Y'all remember Peter, right? Here he is. Some of you, we got Peters in the house. You just say the wrong thing at the wrong time. You talk before you think. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything to follow you. It's like, Peter, really, you, you just didn't get it. <laughs> Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. I love this with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's a lot. Let me start off by saying this. At first glance, this young man has a remarkable resume. Single ladies, no doubt if he decided to attend Inspire Church, he would be the talk of your connect. And you know it's true. Parents. No doubt this would be the kind of young man that you would appreciate your daughter bringing home to perhaps marry one day. And before men, you say, well, hold up. Let me explain to you why this young man may be an answer to your prayers. First of all, he's wealthy. And let's just be honest. Wealth is not everything, but it does help. Amen. After I just rebuked you for talking about wealth. But number two, he's humble. Now, despite his financial prestige, we see a picture in Scripture of this young man running to Jesus and kneeling at his feet. This is not something that you would do if you were very prestigious and wealthy during that time. Men didn't run. They certainly did not kneel before other men. He's wealthy. He's humble. And I love this part about him. He's respectful. Did you catch that? He doesn't just call Jesus teacher, but he adds an adjective in there. He says, good teacher. And maybe my favorite thing about this young man, he's genuinely concerned about his eternity. Can I go off on a tangent for a little bit? Of all the things that consume young adults today, your college, your career, your relationships. Unfortunately for many of you, eternity is not your top priority. It saddens me to see that some, even in the church, 
pursue the temporary pleasures of this world as if eternity doesn't exist. We are hungry for what the world has to offer. And as a result, that becomes our priority while eternity slowly fades off of our list. But not this young man. He's concerned about his eternity. And finally, he's got integrity. I mean, since his bar mitzvah, and I say that because what he's saying is since I was young, since I came of age, I've honored my parents. He's not a crook. He's not a thief. He's not a criminal. He's not sexually immoral. You don't have to worry about him going out with your daughter. Everything about this young man seems perfect until we get to his question. You see, his question exposes what's hidden in his heart. He asks Jesus, ready, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anybody see that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? His question reveals a great deal of self-reliance. He believes that there is something he can do in his own power, in his own strength to earn eternity and achieve acceptance with God. So he asks the teacher, what must I do to achieve and earn eternal life? Now, what looked so good on the surface all of a sudden begins to not look so good. Now, what I want to do today is point out three errors in his thinking, three errors in his mentality that Jesus needed to confront and correct if he was going to get this thing right. The first error is this. Are you ready? He overestimates his own goodness. He overestimates his own goodness. And before we turn our nose up and begin to pick him apart and sneer at him, I need us to remember that you and I do this all the time. Let me explain. You see, we think we deserve good things. So when God doesn't get us what we think we deserve, we blame him as if he owed us some kind of payment for our righteousness. This is what legalism and moralism is. You see, legalism says, because I fasted and prayed, God should bless me. You see, moralism says, because I've been faithful to the church all year long. I even came a couple of times early for worship. God owes me a blessing. We do what this young man is doing. You see, he has successfully turned God into a vendor, turned salvation into a commodity, and he sees his good works as a form of currency that will, that will, that will enter him, that it would allow him to buy his eternity. Now, I want you to get this. This is really important. I want you to see it. Legalism gets angry with God. Because God didn't give me what I deserved. You owe me a raise, God. You owe me a new car. 
Can you see what we're driving in? We've been faithful all year long. We've been giving. You owe me, God. God, you owe me my healing. I've been sick long enough. You owe it to me. I have earned it. But you know what the gospel does? Legalism gets angry with God, but the gospel worships God because God didn't give me what I deserved. You need to catch that. Legalism gets angry with God because God didn't give me what I deserve. But the gospel worships God because he did not give me what I deserve. And I know this is old-fashioned and we don't like to preach like this anymore because we don't want to offend anybody. If you're new here, I love you. I apologize. But let me just say, God owes us wrath. He owes us hell. But instead, he gives us Jesus and we don't deserve it. I want you to see how this mentality poisons your walk. Because some of you in here are allowing legalism and moralism to poison your walk. Let me explain. Overestimating our goodness always leads to underestimating the goodness of God. Legalism produces entitlements. And entitlement always leads to bitterness. And so before long, you'll be in the church for a very long time and deep in your heart, there'll be a root of bitterness consuming you because you haven't gotten what you deserve. But the gospel produces worship. And you ready for this? Worship always leads to obedience. It always leads to obedience. The second error in this young man's thinking, and I hope you realize it's not pick on this young man day, it's pick on all of us day, because if we're being honest and I'm being honest, we all fall into that. I feel like God owes me a couple of things. The second error is this. He misunderstands the true purpose of the law. Now, you might think that Jesus is contradicting the gospel. Did you see that? Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, well, let's talk about the commandments. But can I tell you something? It is true If you can perfectly hold the standards of God, then eternal life is yours. If you can perfectly hold the standards of God, if you can stand up to the perfect righteousness of God's law, and you can stand there innocent, then you could achieve eternal life. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus was actually using the law the way that it was intended to be used. This is good theology right here, so pay attention. The law of God was created to do two things. First, it was created to point out your sin. You might ask, why do I need something to point out sin? And I would respond to you because you always downplay your sin. Like, I get on the freeway. Well, let's go backwards. I'm on the freeway. You know how people just be getting on? And if they're not going to speed of traffic, I'm angry. 
I'm like, don't you know you're getting on the freeway? Everyone is at least hitting 66. You're getting on going 50. What are you doing? You're putting me and my family and my son in danger. Get off the road. You don't deserve to drive. I go around and I, and I look. Some of you have been asking me, Philip, why don't you have an inspired decal on the back of your card? Because I don't want anybody to know. And I'm not just an attender here. I'm a pastor. And my wife knows, and I'm just going to put myself on blast. Several months ago, I even got into it with someone in the, in the, right here in the parking lot. I'm just repenting before y'all, okay? And let her tell you that story one day. All I'm trying to say is, like, if you get in between me and my family and I think you're putting us in danger, I'm going to let you know about it. And, of course, I have the right to do this because that makes sense until I'm driving my gutless car on the freeway. And I'm in a slow lane because I can't go beyond 57. And all of a sudden, someone just comes up right on me, and they're honking. They'll go around. They'll look at me, and I'm like, oh. And I get angry with them and upset. And then I realize, well, wait a minute. I do the same thing to people on the road. And you never know, maybe somebody just got that gutless car that go, can't go beyond 55, and they got to get somewhere. So let me pose the question, why do we need something to point out our sin? Because we do a great job of downplaying it in ourselves and lifting it up in others. We put down what we don't like in our own life that we see in other people. We need the law, y'all, because it was created to point out our sin. Are you with me? Number two, the law was created to point us towards a Savior. Let me explain why. The law has power only to point out your sin, but it does not have power to deliver you from it. And so, therefore, the law condemns you because every time you look at the law, you can't help but see how needy and depraved you are. In fact, there's a lot of people in our culture today, if you talk about eternity, they reason within themselves, well, I'm a good person and I don't hurt anyone. They have totally misunderstood the purpose of the law. And they have distorted themselves by looking in the mirror and downplaying what the law should be showing them. The law has the power to point our sin, but it does not have the power to deliver us from it. Therefore, we must look beyond the law and beyond ourselves for something or someone to save us. This young man needed, needed much more than a teacher. He needed a savior. Yet... He looked in the mirror of God's standard and had the audacity to say, I am perfect. And I love this because his arrogance annoys me until I realize I'm that young man. But I love that because I take comfort in knowing even after this young man just made one of the most arrogant, self-righteous statements anyone could ever make. Scripture says Jesus looked at him and loved him. <laughs> how amazing is his grace 
How amazing is his love that he would look at me, a sinner, and that I would lie to him, not knowing the depth of my need for him, my depravity, and he would look at me and not condemn me, but look at me and love me still. How amazing is his grace. Finally, the third error, after overestimating his goodness and misunderstanding the purpose of the law, we see the root of this young man's problem. He had an idol hidden in his heart. So Jesus loved him. Now I want you to know, Jesus' love and your culture's love are two different things. The culture says, well, if you love me, don't say anything. But Jesus loved him enough to put him on blast, y'all. And this is what Jesus said. Young man, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, doesn't that sound radically harsh? But Jesus was exposing something that needed to be exposed. This young man couldn't see his sin because he was only looking at his behavior. Are you ready for this? But in this radical question that Jesus asks him, this question reveals that this young man's primary problem was not in his actions, but was in his heart. I want you to take note of this. Like Roger says, write this down. Before sin, before sin becomes a behavior issue, it is first an issue of the heart. Before it becomes a behavior, it is first an issue of the heart. So here the Son of God, standing before this religious young man, discerns something key. Are you ready for this? Something other than God was ruling his heart. Something other than God had his affection. Therefore, something other than God was getting his devotion. This is idolatry, and this is the essence of sin. More often times than not, we'd rather have something we can see, touch, taste, and experience than God. He was unwilling to let go of his wealth because it was in his wealth where he found his peace, his joy, his purpose, and his ultimate satisfaction. You hear that? How do we know this? Because scripture tells us he walked away sorrowful. Again, I find myself wanting to point the finger here. I want to condemn him, but I realize I'm just like him. You see, like this young man, how many times have we told Jesus, please hear this part. Like this young man, how many times have we told Jesus, I'd rather have the comforts of this world than the privilege of following you? Sure, we may not be rich, but you live in America, so that kind of disqualifies you. But in our own mind, we may not be rich. We may not have an abundance of possessions, but all of us have something valuable we hold on to, something in our lives we want more than Jesus. If you're being honest, you do. I do. You do. We all do. Jesus wasn't after his good behavior. He was after his heart. He was after his worship. I want to read this to you. Author and pastor Paul Tripp says this. Sin is first about breaking relationship before it's about breaking rules. 
Sin is about loving something more than I love God. And because something else rules my heart, I willingly go beyond God's boundaries. That is sin. And the disciples, upon grasping this difficult, <laughs> they finally get it. <laughs> right? They're astonished by it. And they say, well, then who can be saved? Because this is impossible. And I love it because Jesus answers by preaching the gospel. Are you ready? Jesus answers by preaching the gospel. He says, with man, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What do I mean by that? In other words, we cannot save ourselves. Even on our best day, in our best behavior, our hearts can't help but chase idols. This is the bad news. Our heart is an idol factory, and it produces idols over and over every day. But you need to understand the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. Jesus continues, it's impossible for you, but for God, it's possible. You can't, but God can. What you couldn't accomplish in your own strength, Jesus accomplished for you. See, he was more than just a teacher. He was our redeemer. He was more than just our example. He's our substitute. He led the perfect life that was impossible for you and us to lead. And he took the wrath that you and I deserve to have. And he gave us eternal life with him instead. And here's the scene. The rich young man was standing right in front of the very embodiment of his answer. But because... He had an idol hidden in his heart. He walked away from him. We are all unbelievers. We all have areas in our life right now that desperately need the gospel. So I'm going to ask you something. What are those hidden idols in your heart? Do you know them? Do you know them? Have you identified the hidden idols that are in your heart. And please don't tell me they're not there. They are. What are they? And let me ask you the next question. Now that you know what it is, are you regularly applying the gospel to that idol every day it emerges? Now, last night, my beautiful wife challenged me to illustrate this. Because a lot of times when I'm preaching, I just make an assumption that people might understand what it means to identify an idol and then, I, and then apply the gospel to it. And she challenged me to come up with a story and an illustration. And so as I was thinking about this illustration, I began to think about the idols in my own life. And I began to think about some of you, uh, you may have an idol identical to mine, but sometimes I feel that I place man approval, the approval of man at the center of my heart. I seek approval. And because I seek approval sometimes, I go beyond God's boundaries. What do I mean by that? I seek approval so badly that I have a great fear of rejection. And can I tell you how this fear of rejection plays out? I used to have a sales job where you had to cold call. This is so silly. And you can laugh, but this is my idol. 
and I could not make cold calls. I could not do my job because I was so afraid that when they rejected the sale, they were actually rejecting me personally. It, it, this thing was so heavy in my life that I couldn't even pick up the phone and talk to a stranger about possibly selling them a product because my identity was so tied into their approval. I'll tell you another way. I can't stand listening to myself on the podcast. It's so difficult for me. It's so difficult to this day. And, and I've been told by teachers and coaches and mentors, Phil, you have to listen. You have to get better at your communication. And it's so crazy because when I, when I, when I try to listen to myself, I immediately begin to criticize myself. The moment I hear my voice on this podcast, I immediately find everything wrong. I pick myself apart. I think it was two weeks ago. I must have said, um, a million times. And I counted every one of them. And it was about 10 minutes in, I shut it off. I said, God, I don't know why I can't do this. And I began to pray and I began to have to preach the gospel. And I began to have to understand that in Christ, the Father has accepted me. In Christ, and I'm loved and I'm accepted in Christ. My mistakes and my shame and my imperfections, although I think everyone sees them all the time, in, I am hidden in Christ. And when the Father looks down at me, he doesn't see my mistake-ridden uh, word that I'm preaching, but he sees Jesus. And I have to rest in the pleasure of the Father that I get because I am in his Son. And so every day, my idol comes up. And every day, my idol pushes me towards worship and fear of other things. And every day, I'm tempted to lie and twist the truth and seek approval and criticize myself. And every day, if I'm not careful, I can bow at that idol. So what do I need to do? I need to preach the gospel. I need to preach the gospel. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm received in Christ. I'm not rejected. I'm not abandoned. Some of you, there are things that have happened to you as a child. You still are carrying it. And you're marking yourself with shame. But if you're in Christ, he bore your shame. What is it? It could be a good thing or a bad thing could be something that's healthy and helpful for your life but you're so consumed that you'll do that before you'll read your word you're so consumed you have an image problem you're so consumed it drives you to the gym it drives you to this place and you realize that I have so much insecurity it's driving me to do a good thing being healthy is wonderful but because I'm doing a good thing too much failing to protect and cultivate this relationship I have with Jesus it sounds simple and too practical to understand but the gospel is just not something that gets you into the door the gospel is something that we need to apply to our lives every day so what is it two questions I'm gonna pray have you identified the idols and then secondly, are you identifying them daily and preaching the gospel to yourself daily 
ensuring that you're not bowing down to the idols of your heart, but you're lifting up Jesus because he is the only one that is capable and he is the only one that is worthy of your worship. Let's pray. Jesus. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Can you just take a moment maybe to search yourself? and It may not come up right away. But just let the Lord speak to you just for a moment. What, God, what, what are my idols? And there's no need to hide no more because your word doesn't allow any of us to hide. We all have idols. What is it? What is that thing that's driving me, giving me meaning, purpose, and peace? If I don't have it, then I'm disrupted. How can I preach the gospel daily? Heavenly Father, I just pray for everyone in this room. First of all, we repent of our sin. We repent of our sin. We recognize that everyone is guilty in this room. Nobody can stand before the perfect law of God and say that I can keep it 100%. It's impossible. So we repent of our sin. But secondly, we believe in the gospel. We admit our sin, but then we turn towards Christ and we believe that he bore our shame. He bore our sin. He's our substitute. He's our redeemer and our savior. And because I am in him, I am accepted. I am secure. just every head bowed every I, I just want to pray for your body image right now men and women I struggle with it I'm sure that people I pray right now for those that find themselves trapped in a cycle of insecurity trying to look a certain way trying to feel a certain way and I just pray that every young man, every old man, every young woman, every old, uh, old woman in this room, Lord God, I pray that we will lay down this culture's idolatry of body image. Pray for every insecurity, every fear, everyone feeling incomplete because of a relationship, everyone putting their confidence in a relationship. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus preach the gospel that I am accepted in Christ by the Father. I do not need anything or anyone to make me complete or whole. Christ has already done that. So Lord, I honor you. I praise you. And I give you glory. And I pray that this will be a church that would preach the gospel not just to the people but preach the gospel to our own idol factories our hearts we love you and we praise you in Jesus name amen amen and amen God bless you and go in the grace of God hide in Christ preach the gospel to yourself all week and we'll see you at Connects we love you guys so much have a wonderful Sunday
Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.